Hello and welcome back to the Media Sport Podcast Series, episode number 39. Your host, Brett Hutchins from Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm recording on Zoom again because I'm presently in lockdown with my family dealing with the COVID-19 infection in the house. Rest assured that all family members in question are triple vaxxed and the symptoms being dealt with are relatively mild, which is a great relief. The good news, however, is that this episode's guest is an international leader in the study and communication of how sport, climate change and the environment interact. Dr. Maddie Orr is a lecturer in sport business at Loughborough University London and a founder and co-director of the Sport Ecology Group, an international consortium of academics who drive climate action in the sports sector through research and public education initiatives. Maddie's originally from Toronto in Canada, has worked and studied in the US, France and now the UK, as well as having spent time in Brazil and China. Her activities and track record testify to the fact she is a passionate advocate for climate action. And an impressive feature of her work is the way she combines scholarly research, public speaking, and serious and sustained engagement with industry professionals and organisations, as well as hosting her own podcast series, the Climate Champions Podcast, and I encourage everyone listening to check it out. Maddie's research can be read in journals such as Sport Management Review, Journal of Sport and Tourism and the Sociology of Sport, and she's presently working on a book for Bloomsbury Press with the title Heat Check, How Climate Change is Changing Sports. You can find out more about Maddie and her work through her website, madelineor.com, that's O-R-R, and follow her on Twitter at Maddie with a Y, J-O-R-R. I'll provide links to both in the episode notes. Maddie, welcome to the Media Sport Podcast Series, and thanks for getting up so early London time to speak with me. Thank you so much for having me. I was excited when I got an invite because I've heard this podcast so many times. I've assigned it in my class, so it's, oh. uh, it's fun to be having the conversation, yeah. Uh, lovely. Um, well, let's let's start at the beginning. Your origin story, perhaps. What, where does your interest in sport, climate change, and the environment emerge from? Yeah. So I was a kid who grew up playing sports, but that I never really thought I would end up working in it at all. I'm not a sports fan per se. I think it's interesting. Like I watch sport the way a person who is non-religious might study religion. I guess um, as a phenomena. But I went to France on a gap year um, and worked in the ski industry and we had the worst snow year on record. And so I started looking around and seeing higher injury rates. I saw restaurants close. I saw, you know, the tourism industry starting to tank around Christmas time when we'd gone a month and hadn't opened yet. Right. It was an interesting time. And, and looking around, seeing that, talking to some of the people who had lived on that mountain for a really long time and them telling me this is getting more and more common, I thought, oh, this is going to be a much bigger problem than a one-off bad season. So I left that season thinking, okay, this is interesting, but I wasn't totally sold on the idea of climate change and sport until actually I went to the Rio Olympics to work and was in Brazil and the water was as dirty as everybody said it was and the pollution was as bad as it looked on TV. Uh, they were not exaggerating and you know there were athletes in sailing and rowing and canoeing that were nervous about bacterial infection there were concerns around uh they had killed a few uh, large cats in order to clear the the land for the golf course like there were just all kinds of environmental concerns around the event and i looked at it and thought okay sport really doesn't care about the environment at the moment but we really ought to so 
starting my PhD, I thought I can probably merge these ideas together. How does sport take care of the planet better? And also how is climate change going to impact sport? And my advisor was a little nervous about the idea at first because he said, you're opening a huge can of worms here and I don't know how to help you with that per se. So I, he encouraged me to go to the um, Institute for the Environment where I did a, an extra master's and a, additional coursework at the doctoral level um, in natural resource science and climatology and got that background as well and then did a PhD in I guess what's now sport ecology which is merging the two and it was really interesting and eye-opening I you know got to talk to people from all over the world and people were interested and willing to talk to me because I guess as a grad student you're not intimidating in any way like you just kind of get to be that young person asking questions <laughs> And I didn't necessarily know the right questions to ask. So sometimes I got really great information. And I didn't know how rich it really was until later. And through that process, I met some really cool academics working in this space as well. And we thought, let's put something together here because it seems that sport in the natural environment is, is a huge question. There's a lot of question marks around, you know, artificialization processes, the costs of sport, you know, what's going to be possible in the future? How do we be more sustainable? And because no individual school had more than one person doing it, there wasn't that comrade kind of aspect of having people around you can collaborate with. So we put together this board ecology group and it was immediately like within days picked up by the Commonwealth Sport for Development and Peace Office and the United Nations Environment Program and, and other offices that started to get in touch and say, this is awesome. We need this. Um, and that was kind of our sign that we were on the right track. And since then, we've worked in close collaboration with a number of sports organizations. Uh, we now have 24 members around the world, including in Oz. We have a grad student mentorship program with a cohort this year of 35, which is just to my brain massive and, and really cool that grad students are thinking about this and digging in. And, and I, yeah, and now I'm at the point where I'm, I'm working with documentary producers on these topics. I'm working with ESPN and BBC on how they cover it. And I have the extraordinary privilege of getting to write a book. So it's been a wild few years. Well, I think I'll, I'll speak on behalf of my listeners, which is always slightly dangerous, admittedly, but I think we're all glad you opened the can. Um, and it really, look, we're speaking right on the, the, the cusp. Um, I think when most people listening to this or when the episode gets posted, the Beijing Winter Olympics will be underway. Now, uh -huh. you've been involved through the Sport Ecology Group and your current university in a new report titled Slippery Slopes, How Climate Change is Threatening the Winter Olympics. How the report come about? Um, what's it cover? So this report came about because when we were as a team thinking through kind of what are the next big stories in the next year, which is an exercise we try to do at the top of every year to make sure that we connect with bigger audiences than just academic journals. And so the nice thing about the work in sport is there's a sport calendar that gets decided years out. So we have a heads up in the way that most news people don't. So we were looking through kind of the coming year. This was in September. We do this at the top of the academic year and we thought, Beijing is going to be a very interesting test case for a number of reasons. They are the first to be 100% reliant on renewable energy and the first to be 100% renewable on artificial snow. They have fabricated new facilities for winter sport in places where participation in winter sport is so low that it's a huge question mark around like, will that even be used? There's a whole bunch of questions around ground transport because 
they've now implemented new train lines that are facilitating transport during the games that will be used after. Like just really, really interesting work happening. And in some ways, totally tragic because why are we doing this in artificial snow? So we thought this would be an interesting opportunity to dig into what's happening at Beijing, but equally what's going on with winter sport, because Beijing is not unique. It's just the latest example of an organization using all sorts of technologies to skirt the environmental realities. And that was interesting to us. So we partnered with Protect Our Winters and a global sustainability communications group based in London and a few other kind of back-end partners to dig into this a little deeper. Um, and we had a really fun time with it. And we found out that there's not really a whole lot of surprises coming out of these Olympics. Beijing has been phenomenally transparent with the way they're producing the games, the realities, the situation. So that's cool. Simultaneously, the International Olympic Committee is pretty dead set on making sure that, you know, we are aware of those sustainability efforts. Um, and that's interesting given they're the ones that put it in Beijing. So it was very interesting. The big kind of pieces that I find most salient is the bigger question that gets brought up around what does the winter sport future look like? If Beijing is not climatically tenable moving forward, and it hasn't been for a long time, this isn't a surprise, um, what are the climatically tenable locations? And so Daniel Scott at the University of Waterloo, Richard Steiger, they've done some really interesting work on this over the last 10 years. Uh, and so we used some of their research, we couched it in some of the research I did with Walker Ross in the fall around, you know, what are the next 10 years of mega events look like. And we found that it's going to look very grim in the future unless we curve emissions very quickly. And by grim, I mean, we are going to land ourselves with only a handful of tenable locations for something like this on natural snow. So that's really interesting. And that kind of brings to mind, like, what's the point? Like, if we're not going to have winter sport events and we can't have competitions, what does that mean down the pipeline? What does that mean for the lower levels? What does that mean for the communities that rely on winter sports? Um, because if all these previous host cities can't host an Olympics, they're probably also not having an awesome ski season as well. Hmm. So it's not just that they can't host an Olympics. It's also there's a lot of lost tourism, a lot of lost infrastructure, a lot of lost culture. And that's another whole discussion that isn't really being had yet. Yeah, and I, I commend the report to anyone listening and put a link in the episode notes to that as well. And in setting up our discussion, I actually initially contacted you shortly after the completion of the COP26 conference in Glasgow in late last year in 2021. You were in Glasgow for COP um, and you also organised a shadow meeting for sports professionals titled Sport at COP26. What did that meeting involve and what, what resulted from it? Yeah, so Sport at Cup was a very interesting one for me. It came out of discussions with people I was working with in the industry who wanted to grow sports presence at COP meetings. Typically, there's, you know, two or three meetings at COP that have some sports slant to them. Uh, in this case, the transport day within COP had a whole thing around cycling and equally a whole discussion around Formula E and electric vehicles. But it's very kind of side note. It's a footnote to the event. No one really pays that much attention. And so we thought, let's have an event that is open to whoever wants to attend. It's not behind some closed door for people who are accredited. And let's make sure that we're having a, a discussion around what is climate change doing to sport, but more importantly, 
in what ways does sport have to step up? How does this industry better support climate adaptation policies that are being rolled out in cities around the world? How do sports facilities become carbon sinks? Those kinds of questions that we're really only starting to scratch the surface on. And so we convened this meeting. Um, we had about 80 people in person, partially because we were only allowed to have 80 people in person <laughs> um, because of COVID. Uh, so we had 80 people in person and then a couple hundred that joined online. And there were several elements to the day. We had a student uh, hackathon, which was awesome. So student teams from around the world submitted sustainable ideas around sport. Those were judged by a panel of people from industry and a 2000 sterling uh, award was a, was given to the team that won. Um, we also introduced a few different new tools for how to think about these things uh, framed around the SDGs. The Sports Pro and Laureus Sport for Good Foundation, Sport for Good Index, that's a mouthful every time I say it, uh, was announced, which celebrates brands around the world that are using their sport partnerships to do good. And so we saw really interesting work coming out of you know, small organizations like Hilo, which is a athletic footwear company made from all recycled materials. And each shoe represents community cleanups that are done by youth sports teams, by facilitators. Like it's just this really cool kind of piece all the way up to, to stuff like, you know, your big sports beverages that are using their sports partnerships to promote the fact that all of their plastics are now 100% biodegradable. And here's all the things we can do with that. And, and, and. So that was announced on the day. And then the other part of the day that wasn't planned, but it was, we hoped it would happen was there was some really interesting networking that happened around the day. The media showed up, the athletes showed up. There was some really interesting conversations about like athlete ambassadors on sustainability efforts at teams, just really, really cool stuff that hadn't been top of mind before. So it was a cool day. It was a lot of fun. Um, we will likely be doing it again at Sharm El Sheikh in Egypt in this November. Um, it'll be a little more complicated because obviously that's uh, World Cup time. So the world will be a little distracted, the sports world anyway. But we're hopeful that it will be an equally important and fruitful meeting. Now, I suppose in reflecting on COP26, let's just pull the focus out, perhaps into a more reflective mode. You know, you're mm -hmm. at COP26, you organized your own side event, you've got a a very, I think, unique and perspective on the relationship and how much sports role is recognised. Where are you feeling we're at in terms of progress at the moment? I suppose against addressing climate change impacts, but also getting sport into a position where it's actually really contributing in a way that you, I think you probably know it can. Yeah, I think we're at that stage where the sports industry in the game of climate change is this fresh new rookie with plenty of talent, but we've actually seen no real performance yet to give you an analogy, a sports analogy. You know, it's hard because sport, you know, I'm sure if you've you followed me for two seconds on Twitter, and this is what I'm screaming about every day, but you know, sport has so much potential. We, we capture the hearts and minds of the world and, and not to say that that automatically means we have power. I don't know that it, that necessarily means that there's a lot of professionals in sport who will quote Mandela say, you know, sport has the power to change the world. Yeah, but it really, it's more of a potential to change the world unless we manage for those outcomes. And I think that's where things get lost in the mix. And at the moment, it's a whole lot of potential and not a whole lot of management happening around this. There's a few outliers, obviously, that are really ahead of the pack, doing great work. 
Forest Green Rovers, World Sailing, Sail GP. There's some really cool Formula E, you know, cool stuff happening there. But for the most part, this isn't the priority for most sport organizations, partially because COVID came along at exactly the time they were starting to think about it. And so it got kicked back kind of two years down the line while COVID recovery was top of mind. The other part of it is it's really hard to deal with climate change and sports people for the most part, weren't trained to think about climate. So to ask them to suddenly act on it and reorganize their supply chain and their operations and the way they communicate and the way they do things is a big, big, big ask. So it's very hard to get that kind of work done. And I think it's increasingly people are aware that it's going to be on the agenda. Some owners particularly are cringing at it, but it's going to come up already is impacting sport in the way it's performed, the scheduling, the way facilities are impacted. So I think it's only a matter of time, but the notion that, you know, just because sport can do something, therefore it is doing something, or just because sport has an audience, therefore it's impacting that audience in a positive way. I don't think that's necessarily the case, but I do think there are people who would have me believe that. It's interesting. And look, in preparing for our our, our chat, you know, and doing my research on your activities and, Something that at least comes through to me is that you're a committed educator. So, you know, I suppose in, in dovetailing this to why the move to Loughborough University London and, you know, what are you doing there to, to sort of produce the sorts of programs or teaching that, you know, will help actually educate the next generation of professionals? Yeah. So Loughborough University London about a year ago had a change in the highest leadership. So president, vice chancellor level all changed over and from I wasn't here at the time, my understanding from kind of being on the outside was there's a huge opportunity here if they pick up sustainability because it's been consistently ranked the number one sports school in the world. There is so much investment into sport research. They've done some interesting stuff with social development. They've done some interesting stuff with women empowerment, you know, and credit to them on that. But nobody was really picking up this climate piece in a big way. And as a sport ecology group, it was a conversation we were having a lot is like, where do we couch this? How do we get big institutional support for something like this? You know, where is that first program going to come from? Those kinds of questions. And it's a question that's been, you know, we've been having it for four or five years. When the new leadership came in, they put in place three strategic goals to guide the next 10 years of work. Number one, environmental sustainability. Number two, sport. Number three, social sustainability. And I thought, bingo. There it is. That's the opportunity that we were looking for because there will be the institutional support that can be really hard to come by when you do interdisciplinary work like we do. Because often, like if you read my research, I'm citing stuff out of natural resource and climate change journals and then trying to put those frameworks into sport and journal reviewers have no idea what to do with that. And my bosses didn't have any idea what to do with that. So um, so to find an organ an institution that kind of those two topics were top of mind, I thought that's an opportunity. So I started getting in touch with them a while ago um, when I found out that this changeover was happening and that this would be the, the new strategy. And they opened up a position and they were hiring two people. And they basically said, you should apply. I did. I got it. And then I got here. And within a week of getting here, they said, and we're going to launch a sustainable sport business program and you're going to be the leader on it. So that's what I'm working on right now. We've added a bespoke sport ecology module to the existing sport management master's course. We also are adding a sustainability and leadership module that Russell Seymour, who's the head of BASIS, British Association for Sustainable Sport, 
um, had previously taught and then had left and it had been pulled in a different direction by other faculty members into more social sustainability. And I'm kind of pulling it back to be more of a balance of the two. There's a managing sustainability class that's coming out of the business school. There's more of a technical sustainability aspect coming out of more of our kind of environmental science team around uh, risk assessment and analysis around environmental impact assessment. Um, so it's a really dynamic and cool program. We're really excited to bring it to life. And as we record this, it goes to the highest level of approvals today. So hopefully it gets approved and um, I can go ahead and like scream it from the rooftops because already the partners on the program are Formula E, McLaren Racing is coming in potentially as a partner, BBC Sport. We're working with the United Nations and the IOC on a new Sport for Nature initiative that will be kind of a founding idea around the program. So it's this really kind of cool dynamic piece. The students are going to do annual visits to a Premier League club in London. We're currently partnered with Chelsea and West Ham and likely Arsenal moving forward. So that they'll also go to Wimbledon, they'll go to London Marathon. So it's just like we're in the right place to do it. There's good energy around it. And we're really excited to bring it to life. And, and so to get to be the person to bring those ideas together, to work with those different departments, um, to craft a program was just something I didn't think I would be doing at 28. So I was, it was a really exciting, really, really exciting proposition when I got here. Well, we, we wish you well on the outcome. Uh, a slightly meta turn, talking about podcasting on a podcast. You've released three seasons of the Climate Champions podcast. Uh, look, what have you learned from producing and doing that? You know, how has it helped evolve your thinking? Yeah. I mean, like, number one, podcasts are tough. I think that was the big lesson. Every time I did a season, it felt harder. And not because, like, my technical skills were getting better. I had no background in this little things right so my mom she's a theater professor and she specializes in voice and speech and i started getting calls being like maddie your tone in this section is not great so that was an interesting learning curve for me to learn how to speak but it really is helpful these are skills that you don't realize are so key until you know i, I work very closely with the bbc i've co-hosted some of their shows and you get on the air there, I feel way more confident having done a podcast because I'm comfortable with what my voice sounds like, which is, sounds funny. But if you listen to yourself on recording, it's like, that's a learning curve. And for any communicator, that's something you have to figure out. <laughs> so, um, so that for me was a big learning curve. I also grew my network like crazy doing the show, which was really, really cool. Um, so the production aspects of getting in touch with people, booking them, bringing them on, having a conversation, digging into, in some cases, very personal stories was a really cool part of that experience for me. Uh, it helped to illuminate aspects that I hadn't really considered before. And then the big, for me, kind of mind blowing part most recently on it was season three, we recorded in the middle of the early pandemic. And we actually released seasons two and three, like a couple months apart, because we had been recording season two for a year. And then season three kind of came about during the major waves of protest around Black Lives Matter in the US, where I was at the time. And the conversations around what is sport missing here? When we talk about Black Lives Matter, we typically don't talk about women empowerment at the same time. Why is that? When we talk about Black Lives Matter, we're typically not talking about environment at the same time. It seems to me that sport organizations have 
a very narrow range of what they can pay attention to at any one time, which from a communication standpoint, I get it. You want to be on message. But from a broader standpoint, we need to learn how to juggle multiple challenges at the same time and talk about them together because they go together. And so season three was about climate justice and environmental justice and how these topics go together in the context of sport. And it brought in some really, really interesting ideas. And, you know, there have been research collaborations from guests on the show that have since been published. It's just a really cool way to grow a network and start a conversation. And so I was really proud of that one. And for two years now, I've just been trying to argue a year and a half. I've just been trying to figure out how do I follow it up? All right. Now, let's and just projecting forward into 22. Tell us about your book. Heat check, how climate change is changing sport. What, where, where is it? And really, what are you wanting to add to what we know? As I said, I understand books are often painful things to produce, but you know, they're, they're, there's a reason we do them. So what are you doing with yours? So my book is going to follow the big headlines of the last 10 years in climate change, um, the Australian Open and the wildfires, the flooding that happened after Hurricane Maria and Irma, and then later Ida, and, and what that meant for sport, essentially recasting these stories through a sports lens, the way it would have appeared if those stories had been told on the front page of sports news, in addition to the front page of the regular news. So far, it's taken me on a few different trips uh, into, you know, ski ghost towns that have been closed into golf courses that get repeatedly flooded to football clubs that have lost facilities to athletes that have lost opportunities in their careers because, you know, they don't have opportunities to train anymore close to home. In the next couple months, I'm going to be doing a two-month research tour in the U.S. around wildfires and how it's impacted youth sport opportunities around the impacts of smoke even far from the fire. But equally, you know, I'm going to spend some time down in Caribbean islands working with local officials because in many countries in the Caribbean, and, and sports people don't tend to know this, but the sports facilities are used as the storm shelters, and there are a lot of storms. And so sport doesn't just have to be responding to these things. In many cases, sports facilities are the response, and they are central to community rebuild as well. And so there's this whole dynamic around sports and emergencies and climate change that already is there that we just don't see. So I'm hoping to bring that to life. And it's been a really... It's been a very interesting project. I think the number of chapters has changed 12 times since I started. The number of interviews, the list has just grown a lot. It's one of those things where like, at what point do you know enough? Because in academia, I have the kind, I can couch it in, okay, I've reached saturation or okay, I've reached the kind of practicable number of people I can reach in a given time, given the ethics and blah, blah, blah. On a book, um, it feels like there's just so much, so much more that is just my decision-making and a lot less guidance from the kind of strict guidelines of academia. So it's just been a very different way to write and think and operate, which has been really cool. Oh, look, it sounds fascinating. And I think that global perspective you bring, you know, is wonderful. Um, look, Manny, right. uh, I just want to say thanks for your time and sharing your expertise with me. And I, and I wish you a really safe and productive 2022. Thank you. Likewise. And I hope you start feeling better from COVID soon. <laughs>